Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18. If you have the Pew Bible, that is on page 1009. Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, as we come this morning to your word, and as we are reminded of these two strikingly different realities, God, would you speak through your word? Would you remind us as your people which mountain we have come to? Would you remind us of the things that are ours in Christ? And may we rejoice and celebrate as your people these glorious things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever had the experience of being disoriented? Uh, maybe you were in an unfamiliar place. Uh, maybe you're hiking in the woods and you're, or in the mountains and you can't really get your bearings. You don't know where you're at. You get disoriented. Maybe you are in a city that you are unfamiliar with and you don't really, don't really know where you're at. Uh, yesterday, I took a couple of my kids and some of their friends to the Brewers game, and we stopped at a Jimmy John's before we got to the game, and we were just outside of, the, of Milwaukee, and one of the kids looks at me, he goes, where are we? <laughs> like, he wasn't paying attention, right? He didn't have his phone out. He wasn't, like, following the GPS, and, and he didn't know where we were. Uh, one of the other kids snarkily said, we're in Jimmy John's, duh, <laughs> but that's not what he meant. He was, he was disoriented. He didn't know where he was. And maybe you've had this experience, especially if you've traveled abroad, uh, you've had this experience of culture shock and, and kind of being disoriented by this new place. I remember the first time I went to China in college, we, we land and we get on this bus and we're, we're in Beijing, we're driving from the airport to the campus where we would stay for the summer. And it was just this like crazy experience of like, what am I seeing? Like, what are these buildings? What are these signs that I can't read? What, like, what is all this stuff? It's this whole new world and you just feel out of place. You feel disoriented. If you're a fan of the Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, several of the books begin with the children experiencing life in this world. And then through some cer unique circumstances, all of a sudden they're transported into this other world. There's a major disorientation that takes place. The early scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Lucy enters the wardrobe and she's backing up. She feels the fur coats, and then all of a sudden she feels 
prickly pine needles and then she's stepping on snow and she's like, what is going on? Where am I? And she finds herself in Narnia. And there's this battle with her siblings who don't believe her story. And she has crossed over into this other world and she is strangely drawn to that world. And through the books, when the kids have to, when it's coming to the end and they know they have to go back into the real world, there is this sadness that they experience because they want to stay in this other world. I think there's a sort of parallel with our passage today and with the situation that is faced by the recipients of this letter and with the people of God throughout all of history. There is this battle for belonging. And the question is that we need to ask ourselves, to which kingdom am I pledging my allegiance? Am I pledging my allegiance to the kingdom of God or to the kingdom of man? We need to ask ourselves that again this morning. Are we content to just keep on keeping on in this world, taking our cues from this world and finding our identity and our place in this world? Or are we reorienting ourselves according to the realities of another world? The message that the original audience of Hebrews and that we today have been constantly reminded of is that Jesus has rescued you from this old system that couldn't save you. So why would you go back to that? Why would you go back to relying upon that? Now, for us today, obviously, it's not animal sacrifices, right? None of us grew up, uh, maybe some of us grew up with maybe going to the farm and seeing animals or grew up on the farm, you know, seeing animals get slaughtered. And, um, but that wasn't so you could like have your sins forgiven, right? It was so that you could eat them or so that you could sell them. We don't, we, we don't have that type of, of reliance upon that. But is there in our lives a reliance on the ways of the world? Is there a reliance on the standards of the world or the approval of the world for us to be right with God? We've constantly been confronted as we've gone through Hebrews with the truth that Jesus is better. And we see that today again in another passage with this comparison between the old and the new. This is really coming uh, pun totally intended here. It's kind of coming to a summit or a peak, right, of, of the book, of this whole argument. And we're going to see these two mountains contrasted. The old way is represented by Mount Sinai in verses 18 through 21. The new way is represented by Mount Zion in verses 22 to 25. The goal for us today, as you'll see in the sermon title, is that we would recognize which mountain we're on. Finish strong by recognizing which mountain you're on. We've been talking about this theme the last three weeks about finishing strong. I've been sharing about how I'm preparing to go on my sabbatical a week from tomorrow. Um, we've had these four weeks in Hebrews chapter 12. We're finishing up Hebrews. And we've said we want to we finish this, this book strong. I want to finish strong in this, these last, this last week. I don't want to check out talked about how James has finished strong wrapping up seminary and getting ordained and as a congregation how we want to finish strong before we head into the summer so part of finishing strong we've we've already looked at running the race we've looked at God's discipline of us as uh, children now we want to look at this understanding of of where we are right where we reside which mountain are we on so we're going to briefly walk through this text. I'm going to try to tie it together with what we've seen up to this point in Hebrews. 
But then we're going to zoom out and we're going to take kind of a big picture overview of a larger theme that runs throughout all of scripture that this Mount Sinai and Mount Zion contrast is a representation of. So this is kind of a, a microcosm of a bigger theme. So we'll get to that. But we need to start here in verse 18 by keying in on these first six words that we see here. It says, for you have not come to. Okay, our author sets the stage for his argument here. For you have not come to. Then he goes on to describe the scene at Mount Sinai. We read about this in our Old Testament reading in Exodus 19 and 20. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to meet with God and to receive the law. Notice the language here. You have not come to what may be touched, describing Sinai. Paradoxically, it actually couldn't be touched, right? It was like Sinai had this big stay away sign. There were warnings not to touch the mountain. You have not come to what may be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. These are not inviting words, right? Someone doesn't uh, send you a, a graduation invitation or invite you over for lunch and say, hey, come and join us. I've got a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. It's going to be a great time. Maybe the blazing fire, right, if, it, if you're having a bonfire. But like you get the picture here, right? This isn't this invitation to something that you want to take part in. This is this like, ooh, I want to stay away from that. Verse 19 then echoes what we saw in Exodus 20, 18 through 21. Verse 19 here says, the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. That's what we saw in Exodus 20. The people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Right? They were terrified. They didn't want to hear the voice of God. Verse 20, they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Again, the people were not allowed to come and to touch this mountain. They would be stoned and they would be run through with spears. Not even the animals could get close and touch the mountain or they would receive a death sentence as well. The one word that might describe this whole scene is terror. See that in verse 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, the verses prior to this, which we saw last week, were about how God lovingly disciplines us as his children and how we are to strive for peace and holiness. Now, there's certainly a temptation to feel like those things that we saw last week, uh, this, this uh, discipline of God and, and striving for holiness, that those things can only happen in the context of this terrorizing scene where God is a hard taskmaster. But that's exactly opposite of what is true. It is not true that it is this terrorizing scene. The, the encouragement to do the things that we saw last week come now in verse 22. How are we to, to run the race? How are we to lift our drooping hands? How are we to strive for peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord? It's not by coming to Mount Sinai. It's not by law keeping. It's as we see in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion 
and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It shifts dramatically. The author here gives us three synonymous descriptions for what is opposite of the terror of Mount Sinai. This place is called Mount Zion or the city of the living God or the heavenly Jerusalem, all synonymous names, which we're going to get into a little bit in our next section here as we see the significance of this theme throughout all of scripture. But first, let's look here at the things that are that characterize our approach to God. This is not here a scene of terror like it was at Sinai, but this is a scene of celebration. Look at the end of chapter or at the end of verse 22 into verse 23. We've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. These angels are are gathered, they're worshiping, they're, they're praising God for who he is. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. To God, the judge of all. Notice we don't have a removal here of the reality that God is judged, but the reminder that his judgment is something that is to be celebrated. Then it's the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Along with the assembly of the firstborn, it is those who have died in Christ, those who have gone before us. It includes the Old Testament saints who looked forward to Christ, who trusted in him for their justification. And then verse 24, and to Jesus, the one who this whole thing is all about, he is there. He is the mediator of the new covenant. Our author has already used this language in chapter 8 and chapter 9 of Hebrews that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. As we also saw in earlier chapters, the Old Testament priests, they were established to be mediators between God and people, but they were insufficient to do that because of their own sin. The Old Testament priests could not shed their own blood as a perfect sacrifice for sins, but Jesus did. His sprinkled blood speaks a better word. There's our our key word here that we've seen throughout Hebrews. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, you've maybe read this verse before and been like, what on earth does that mean? That Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel. Well, Philip Hughes in his commentary has a helpful description of what this means. He's explaining how Abel's blood, the notions of of Abel's blood speaking, it comes from Genesis chapter 4, where God says to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel's blood, wickedly shed, cries out for justice and retribution. In contrast, though, to Abel's blood, which cries out for justice and retribution, he speaks, he he describes here how Jesus' blood speaks that better word. Jesus' blood, he says, speaks eternal redemption to us instead of condemnation. The final putting away of sins, the purging of evil consciences, the perfecting and sanctification of all to whom it is applied. It speaks of acceptance instead of rejection, of blessing instead of cursing, for it is uniquely this blood which cleanses us from all sin. Abel's blood cries out for judgment, but Christ's blood cries out for mercy and pardon. To this precious blood of Jesus, the citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem has come. And through faith in the atoning blood of his high priest's perfect, sac- priest perfect sacrifice, the accusing voice of his past wickedness is silenced forever 
as the blood of the cross of Jesus speaks peace to his heart. He's talking about us there. Those who have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, our high priest, his sacrificing blood speaks peace to our hearts and not condemnation. The word that Abel's blood spoke was condemnation and judgment. Jesus' blood speaks peace and speaks forgiveness and reconciliation with God. So as he was saying, this is what we get as citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. Instead of the terror of the law and facing God's judgment on our own, Jesus stands in our place as our mediator who shed his own blood for our forgiveness. This truth has to get drilled deep down into us. One of the challenges that I think we face is that we tend to both overly individualize this and we fail to see the larger significance of God's redemptive purposes of his people as they unfold in all of scripture. And one of my favorite areas of study is biblical theology, where we take a look at a theme in the Bible. We trace something in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We look at how that theme is unpacked so we can better understand who God is and what he has done for us. And I love doing that. I try as much as I can to do it in my, in my preaching and incorporate it. But as we're committed to preaching through books of the Bible, we're, we seek to be faithful to the text. So we're not often like kind of going outside of the text too much. Maybe we'll go to an Old Testament reading that's parallel, but we're not taking a theme. We're not doing like a, a systematic you know, study of one topic. We don't do a lot of topical sermon series. So it's a little bit of a challenge. Uh, this is something that is usually easier to do like in a classroom setting, like in a Sunday school. So I'm going to go a little bit outside of the box this morning as we dive into this theme of the city of God. Uh, I do want to give a couple recommendations here. Uh, the first one is this book called The City of God and the Goal of Creation by T. Desmond Alexander. This is a great little series by Crossway called Short Studies in Biblical Theology. So The City of God and the Goal of Creation. This is what I'm going to be kind of following along as I walk us through this. Another great book is called, called God Dwells Among Us uh, by G.K. Beale and Mitchell Kim, Expanding Eden to the Ends of the Earth. It's kind of walking through this theme of the city of God from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, if you want a little bit more of a challenge, this book is probably going to be a little deeper in some ways. Um, and this one is going to be a little easier to follow, but I'm um, going to walk us through uh, some of the things in here. And uh, we're going to we're going to do this kind of again to, to see that what we see in our text here with Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, as we're asking ourselves this question, which mountain are we on? Sinai and Zion really represent kind of this bigger theme throughout all of scripture. So I'm just going to walk us through this. Um, there's a lot here. Okay. So please try to pay attention. If, if you want more information, you can get that book or I could give you my notes on some of this stuff. Uh, it's going to probably feel a little bit like drinking from a fire hose, but I hope you see, this is one of those things that gets me really excited. I hope you see how key this theme is to our passage today and to our Christian lives. So this will be a little bit of like a 30,000 foot fly over view for us, but here we go. So one of the main refrains in scripture is that God will be our God and we will be his people and that he will dwell among us. We see that over and over in scripture. We want to trace that storyline in terms of location. God says he will dwell among us. So what does that mean? How and where will God dwell among us? Well, it begins in the Garden of Eden, 
right? This perfect creation, God walking in the garden with, with Adam and Eve, unhindered fellowship with God. But very quickly, things take a turn for the worse. Adam and Eve sin, and they are separated from God. They're banished from paradise, the place that God dwelt with his people. They no longer have access to that place. And really, the whole rest of the Bible is looking at this problem. How can humanity be restored to perfect fellowship with God? It's trying to undo that, that pr- problem, right? It's trying to fix that original problem. After the flood, God blesses Noah and his sons, and he tells them, in the same way that he told Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. However, as we see, the flood does not wash away the problem of sin in human hearts. After Noah's descendants fill the earth again, they try their hand at city building. You know the story, Genesis chapter 11. And we usually talk about this story in, just in terms of the Tower of Babel. But they were actually building an entire city. The tower was just the thing in the middle that they were building to try to get up to God and make a name, up to heaven and make a name for themselves. Alexander says that Babel epitomizes the antithesis of what God desires and that it is to be viewed as the prototypical godless city. Babel is short for Babylon, which has great significance moving forward in the drama of scripture. So there's this perfect creation, right? This garden where God is with his people. But then all of a sudden, we only 10 chapters, however, yeah, 10 chapters later, we see in chapter 11, this, this contrast, right? With people trying to make a name for themselves and build their own city. So already there's this, this huge battle that's going on. After that, God calls Abraham out of a pagan land and he promises to make him into a great nation. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were nomads. They were wandering around, dwelling in tents. We saw in Hebrews 11 that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And that he and his descendants were strangers and exiles on the earth who were seeking a homeland and desiring a better country, and that God has prepared for them a city. So we're starting to already see this kind of contrast, right? After the exodus out of Egypt, in Exodus chapter 15, and the song of Moses, when the people are celebrating their deliverance, Moses and the people sing these words about the future of God's people, Exodus 15, 17, and 18. It says, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So God will bring them and plant them on his own mountain. Four chapters later is the account of the terrifying scene at Mount Sinai that we read about in Hebrews 12. This hardly seems like the fulfillment of the song of Moses, right? That he's bringing them to his mountain. Mount Sinai was not the mountain that God would bring his people to and plant them and make his abode and sanctuary. However, the picture of the holiness of God and the separation from the people on Mount Sinai was actually not an isolated event. This is one of the things that Alexander does a really good job in his book explaining. The portable tabernacle that God instructed the Israelites to build and then to travel around with as they would set up this tabernacle and meet God in worship, this tabernacle with its three parts, the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place actually have parallels to Sinai and how far people could get, how close people could get to God. It mirrored these divisions 
Um, one, just one example, only Moses was allowed to go all the way up to the top of Mount Sinai to meet God, just in the same way as only the high priest singularly could go into the most holy place and meet God, right? There's this picture in Sinai, in the tabernacle of this, still this separation from God, right? God is holy and we are separated. There are these barriers that keep us from getting to God. After the wilderness wandering for 40 years, the Israelites finally enter into the land of Canaan and they begin to conquer these cities. The last city to fall is Jerusalem, commonly referred to as Zion or the city of David. Jerusalem finally falls to the people. This is the apex of the conquering. Solomon builds a majestic temple that would house the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the significance of God no longer wandering about with his people, but having a permanent dwelling place. So it's moving closer and closer to this idea of God permanently dwelling with his people. From an earthly perspective, for the Jews, they're sitting here going, all right. We finally arrived, right? We were, we were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God brought us out. We wandered with this portable tabernacle. Now we've conquered this city. We've built this temple. The Ark of the Covenant is secure. Boom, we're here, right? We've made it. We've arrived. But as we know, trouble was right around the corner. Not only do the nations around them show hostility to God and to God's king in Zion, if you look at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, the whole theme of the beginning of all of the Psalms is that there's this opposition of the nations to God. There's this opposition to God's king in Zion. And that's, you see that theme repeated throughout the Psalms. Pay attention to that as you read through the Psalms. Then the people are led astray from God through idolatry. Then the kingdom is divided. The northern kingdom of Israel fell to Assyria in 722 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah and the capital in Jerusalem fell to Babylon. Okay, see what's going on here? The city of God, this, this picture of God, of security, of God being with his people, this fortress that couldn't be shaken, falls to this contrasting picture that goes all the way back to Genesis 11, right? People trying to build this kingdom for themselves. God's people, God's temple falls to Babylon. In 586, the people are exiled. The temple is destroyed. So God's people are no longer in the promised land. Israel is overrun by enemy armies. And the house of God in Mount Zion lies in ruins. This is not a pretty picture. This is not where God's people want to be. And the rest of the Old Testament, this is another thing Alexander does a great job at explaining the prophets. The rest of the Old Testament is dedicated to the message of God's prophets whom he raised up both to call God's people back to him through their preaching about judgment for their sins. So there's judgment on the one hand, but then there's also this promise of restoration. As you read through the prophets, um, I want you to keep those two things in mind, judgment and restoration. We're going to be preaching through the minor prophets beginning this fall. So we're going to have a lot of time to explore those themes of judgment and restoration. And we'll be coming back to some of this. So the prophets, they have a lot to say about the fall of Jerusalem and about divine judgment. But again, there's this constant refrain of, of restoration and transformation of Jerusalem and of the temple. We especially see this language in the latter chapters of Isaiah, 
We see it in Daniel, and we also see it in Ezekiel. It's speaking of this future age in which a messianic figure will come, and he will be at the center of all these events. And when Jesus comes on the scene, it's pretty interesting how he kind of flips the script. We see this especially in the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew is known as the most Jewish of all the gospels. It would have been written to those who would have had the highest expectations of this earthly renewal of Jerusalem, of this messianic king coming to save his people in a human sense, restoring Jerusalem to its glory. But Jesus speaks very negatively about Jerusalem and its religious leaders. He said that calls Jerusalem the city that killed the prophets, the city whose inhabitants he wanted to gather as a hand gathers her brood under her wings, but they were unwilling. There's this constant refrain in Matthew of the the rejection of the Messiah, of, of keeping Jesus at arm's length, because they wanted a Messiah to come and to liberate them and to provide for them political independence. Instead, they killed their Messiah, and within 40 years, Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed again. You see the cycle here, right? This dependence on on these human things, and it just keeps crumbling. I said that Jesus flipped the script on them, but in a sense, he actually fulfilled the script. The promises to Abraham early on were about the nations being blessed by Abraham's descendants. Isaiah said that Israel would be a light to the nations. As Simeon held up baby Jesus, he quoted this line from Isaiah, that he would be a light to the nations. Jesus would live and die and rise from the dead and commission this tiny band of followers to go out from Jerusalem and make disciples of all nations. They would turn the world upside down, not by military force, not by requiring people to pledge their allegiance to a city or to an earthly king, but to the king of kings who was preparing them for a city to come. Instead of God dwelling among his people in a physical temple, he would now dwell within his people by his spirit. The church is God's spiritual temple. We saw that in our assurance of pardon in Ephesians chapter 2. Notice the parallels with the language in Hebrews 11 about Abraham and his descendants being strangers and exiles. This is Paul writing to the Ephesians. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Same language we saw about Abraham and his descendants, but you are fellow citizens. Notice that language, right? Citizens. You belong to this place. Citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation. Notice this building language here the foundation of the apostles and prophets christ jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the lord in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for god by the spirit this is the good news so All of that imagery in the Old Testament, it was all pointing forward to what God would do in his people. It was all this transformation from a physical place, right? A physical king to this spiritual reality of what we have, of who we are now with our King Jesus. Not just an earthly king, but a heavenly king. 
Now we come finally to our last imagery in the Bible that ties all of these things together. In the book of Revelation, John wraps up all of human history by contrasting Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon is the great prostitute who deceives and manipulates the nations and is filled with those who have turned away from God and replaced him with other lovers. It is a picture of impurity and idolatry and unfaithfulness. On the other hand, the new Jerusalem in chapters 19 and 21 is the bride, the wife of the lamb. She is pure and holy and filled with those who love God and desire to live for him. The title of Alexander's book, The City of God and the Goal of Creation. The goal of creation is in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, hear these words, right? This is is all of scripture wrapping up. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the new, the heavenly Jerusalem, to which we have come, we're told here in Hebrews chapter 12, as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, maybe your head is spinning right now from this kind of whirlwind 30,000-foot tour of all of scripture. But let me try to land the plane here a little bit with some so what's for us today. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, we read these words. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now this hints at the already and the not yet reality of the things that we've been looking at. We already are citizens of another kingdom, but we are not yet fully there. We live in this in-between right now where we must wrestle with the realities of life in a fallen world. You might say to yourself, well, all of this theology is well and good, but I don't see how it's actually practical in my daily life. But I would argue that these things are immensely practical. It answers the question, how can I live in this world as a citizen of this nation, and how can I still honor God as I wait for the full realization of my heavenly citizenship? If you don't feel that tension at all, I don't know what to tell you, but living as a Christian in this world, you should be feeling that tension, right? How do I be faithful to God? How do I long for that kingdom that is to come and still live in this world and still not go, cra- you know, not go crazy living in this world. Alexander wraps up his book with a very fantastic section that he calls Living in Babylon. Okay, listen carefully. For those who are united to Jesus Christ, eternal life begins here and now, as does citizenship of the city that will one day be created by God on a renewed earth. Jesus challenges his followers to look forward in faith, to pray and work for the spread of God's rule here and now. 
They are to exercise true humility, remembering that they have been redeemed from evil only by the grace of God and not by their own achievements or piety. They are to witness to an alternative worldview that promotes belief in a creator God, highlighting the inadequacy of a purely materialistic view of human existence. They are to be peacemakers, reconciling those who are alienated, especially from God. They are to make disciples of Jesus Christ, extending God's kingdom throughout the world through self-sacrificial love. They are to hunger and thirst after righteousness, caring for the oppressed and promoting social justice for the benefit of the marginalized. They are to resist the powers of evil, arming themselves for the spiritual battle that continues to rage until Christ returns. They are to consider themselves exiles and pilgrims in Babylon, holding lightly to this life, but living in the absurd and evil world in confident anticipation of all that God will yet do. They are to live holy lives, aiming for personal moral perfection and purity. They are to love others wholeheartedly, including their enemies, as an expression and outworking of their sincere love for God. They are to fulfill their creative capacity as home and city builders, but ever recognizing the temporary nature of this present world. Jesus Christ calls his followers to be kingdom builders here and now, but they are to do this with the confident assurance that Christ will return to address every injustice as universal judge, vindicating and punishing as appropriate. Only then, with the defeat of evil, will God establish new Jerusalem on a renewed earth. Amen. Let us pray. God, we are challenged by what we've just heard. We are challenged by this reminder that we are, though we are redeemed, though our citizenship is in heaven, we are still called to live in this world, what we might call Babylon. We are called to, to trust you. We are called to pursue you. We are called to be a light to the nations in the midst of wickedness. Now, this is not something that we can do on our own, individually or as a church. God, we need your spirit to move in our hearts, in our lives. We need you to move in the hearts and the minds of those around us who are opposed to you and your ways. Lord, we ask you to give us courage to go out from here, living as those who are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, who live in that already not yet tension and seek to make you known in the midst of all that we face here. God, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, send us out from here to be your ambassadors. God, remind us by your grace of which mountain we're on and of what that means of the forgiveness of the sprinkled blood of Jesus that cleanses us and makes us clean that we don't have to run back to the old ways. We don't have to look for forgiveness. We don't have to look for satisfaction 
We don't have to look for acceptance in this world, but it's found in you and you alone. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.